to see you all. There's so many things. I feel like I was so encouraged by the Ehe Koso Hotsugan one. It's not, um, it's, it's something I really treasure uh, even in with its problematic parts. <laughs> and uh, uh, we don't chant it where I am now. And so chanting it was, I was like, oh, maybe we should just stay there. <laughs> in this life, save the body. That, that's a whole Dharma talk. Quietly explore the farthest reaches of these causes and conditions as this practice is the exact transmission of a verified Buddha. <laughs> Maybe that's all I should say, but I'll say some more. Um, I, I appreciate so much the invitation to be here this morning and, um, and also appreciate each one of you and your attention and your presence. Um, it's not something I take for granted at all. And um, it's a gift you're giving me to be here and giving me your attention. So um, that's how I always feel when I have the privilege of giving a Dharma talk. And then, so what it makes me feel is I wanna give you a gift. So my deep intention is to say things that are supportive for your practice and your life. Um, that being said, you know, <laughs> um, I wanna acknowledge that, you know, I'm uh, among other identities, I'll try to name a couple of them. Um, but particularly, I would say, being raised as a, a white person in the United States, I just really want to own and acknowledge I, my conditioning comes with a bunch of obscuration. There's a lot that I can't see because of my, uh, particularly because of my racial identity, but there are other parts too. And um, even though my intention is to offer something completely helpful, <laughs> um, there may because of that obscuration and because of the ways I um, can't see things, there may be some harm, there can be. And um, if that happens, and this is important too, and if you have the energy for it, I really welcome your feedback. Um, I, and, and you know, we don't always have the energy to give people feedback, like what you said was harmful. <laughs> so I recognize that. I do want to welcome it because I'm in a, you know, I'm in a lineage of, um, and kind of in a, a sea of predominantly white convert Buddhist teachers, um, the the communities I've lived and trained in, and um, and sometimes from this seat, many people in my category have caused harm. Um, yeah, so, and that feedback doesn't have to come today. Ian and Laura have my email, so you can always reach out later. But I will try to not cause harm. I got, I had, I got to speak at uh, Brooklyn Zen Center one time before, and I can tell when it was because my daughter, who's now about to turn 18, was then about to turn five, so it was probably 13 years ago. Um, and when I was talking with Laura and Greg a couple of months ago, and I was like, you know, it was that time when you all were in that garden apartment and Greg was laughing. <laughs> He's like, it was a basement. <laughs> um, and uh, I realized like, oh yeah, I guess there was a boiler there. But <clears throat> I was, uh, the reason, I remember it, 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 it made an impression on me. At that time, for just about a year and a half, we were living in Massachusetts. Uh, we were had been living in Sangha. Our, old, our oldest daughter was born at Tassajara. Um, and uh, our, our second daughter was born uh, six months before that talk actually and, and died as an infant. So we were in a lot of grief. We were also in 
just sort of floating without sangha. And I remember that day really clearly, actually. It was a, it, it was a real nourishment for my soul to spend the morning um, with the BZC sangha as it was 13 years ago. So I remember that place with great warmth and, um, you know, I guess a little more sparkly than a basement. It was a very warm basement. And over the years since then, I've, um, from afar, because uh, we moved back to California, um, been paying attention to what's happening in, in the growth and development of, of your Sangha. There's a lot of things that um, are happening at Brooklyn Zen Center that are really resonant and inspiring for me. And so I've been watching <laughs> in my own way um, how, how you all have uh, grown and, and grown into ancestral heart. And uh, I'm deeply encouraged by the practice in your Sangha. And as I was preparing for this talk, I realized it makes me, just in what I know from a distance, I, um, I already, I feel a kind of um, ground in, in, what, in what I know you all take up together and the kind of refuge it creates when people, even within, you know, in the United States, I don't know if there's anywhere we can get away from the influence and the impacts of dominant white culture um, and, and all the baggage that comes with that and all the trauma that comes with that. And um, we can create spaces of refuge as practitioners together where we're honest and we're at least trying you know, to uh, own our conditioning. And I appreciate so much that that seems like it's a, a strong current in your Sangha. So some <clears throat> just, <clears throat> what I would like to talk about today actually is accountability and, and what that looks like in a bodhisattva frame. And I was gonna say before I do that, but in a way actually aligned with that, <laughs> I'll name a few of the identities that I hold. Some of which you, if you can see and hear me, you're probably already guessing. Um, I'm white racially identified um, or designated. I, um, I am female, I use the pronouns she and her. Um, I'm a cisgendered female who has never been particularly feminine. <laughs> so I feel like yeah, there's non-binary aspects to my gender identity. Um, and, and, as a, and as a girl growing up in the seventies that was allowed, you know, tomboys are permitted in a way that boys expressing feminine were not so much in my world growing up. Um, I grew up in Massachusetts, so I'm from New England and um, that shapes me <laughs> quite a bit. Um, I grew up pretty kind of working class identified, but I would also say that in my lifetime, I've had a lot of different class identities. So in terms of class, I feel like I have a very broad spectrum of um, consciousness and cluelessness together. <laughs> and, um, and in my adult life, I've spent most of it living in and among predominantly white convert Buddhist, Soto Zen Buddhist Sanghas. Um, and that shapes me. And in Northern California, and that shapes me. Um, and, and I'm also a partner. Um, I hold this identity of being a priest. Those things shape me. And, and probably the biggest and, and deepest Dharma teaching in my life is being a parent and uh, all of my children have identities. I won't go too far down that road. Maybe someday I should just give a talk about, about my children and how they've shaped me in as Dharma. 
Um, but each of them hold identities that in some way um, historically or even currently are, are repressed or marginalized or um, that there's big layers of shame on identities that they hold. Um, one of my children is in recovery, for example, our oldest daughter. And I asked her if that was okay to talk about it. She said it was, <laughs> um, which is a hard thing to be when you're 17 and, and she's 17. Um, and there, you know, and I mentioned that only because not to like TMI, but because I'm kind of, I'm not here for the shame thing and all the under, misunderstanding that comes with addiction in, our, in, in my, in most of the cultures I move in. Um, and our middle daughter is not living. So just so you know, most of the time I, when people say, how many kids do you have? I'll say two, but um, in this Sangha, I feel like there's room for me to acknowledge I have a middle child and she's not living. Um, and she's a huge teacher in my life. And our youngest son is, um, he was adopted at birth. Our two daughters are biological um, and our son is nine and a half and he is uh, three quarters Samoan so he's transracially adopted. So that is a whole teaching in my life to be a parent of a child of color and how to care for him in that and how to care for the world in that. And um, we're in an open adoption with his family. And that is like open adoption. So we have a relationship with his birth family. Um, you know, he's been with our families since birth and um, open adoption is a very complex relational field for which I am super, super grateful uh, to be a part of. But all of those things, like all of this stuff and a bunch of other stuff uh, that I can't see and know shapes who I am. And I just wanna acknowledge that uh, being with you. I wanna acknowledge the bits of the vastness that I can see. You know? And that's part of what I wanna talk about in terms of <clears throat> a, a genuine bodhisattvic accountability in the world. Um, so beginning last summer um, with a, a Dharma, a dear Dharma sibling, Reverend Lynn Schutt, um, who teaches in Oakland, uh, her sangha is based in Oakland, uh, the Access to Zen Sangha or A to Z. Actually, she, she's been working on a programming, she, she's created a distinct curriculum around uh, the Four Noble Truths, she calls them, she has a variation of them called the Engage Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So the, four, the teaching of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path um, has, has been around. We've been, we work together and then with another team with um, my partner, Charlie Bacorny and then um, Dalila Bothwell, who I think some of you may know from her time in New York. Um, we're on a teaching team where we're using those ideas for this four month intensive called the Dharma of Being Anti-Racist. And that's a really, I really, I do a lot of work in the Dharma around centering anti-racist practice. Uh, a lot of the time I work specifically with other white teachers and white identified folks. This uh, four month intensive is uh, the teaching team is 50, 50 people of color and white folks. And the, so is the student group. Um, so it's a really unique place to do that work for me. And again, so it centers around the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And so since last summer, those teachings, those really fundamental teachings to, to the Dharma have just been turning in me and have been really supportive. So I just wanna bring some of that and hope that it's supportive for you. Um, 
just to just a quick review <laughs> for anybody who'd like it. Um, the Four Noble Truths are basically what the Buddha woke up to. Um, he, in his enlightenment, and it's the, the Noble Truth of Suffering or Dukkha. I was thinking about Dukkha this morning. I was like, that's like that's like a, one of those words that sounds like what it is, which is suffering, you know, like an onomatopoeia. And the second noble truth is that there's a cause of, of suffering, which is um, traditionally rendered or translated in English as craving. In Zen, I feel like we use the word grasping. Either way works, uh, both in their in its obvious and more subtle forms. And then uh, the third noble truth is often translated uh, as cessation. So there's a way to stop the cause or the, the cycle of suffering. I think for myself, it's more helpful to think of the third noble truth as interrupting. There's a way to interrupt the cycle of suffering. And the fourth noble truth is there's a practice to engage and that's the eightfold path that makes us less likely to fall into the cycle of suffering. Um, for the past few years, I, one of the things that's been really helpful to me is to stop trying to look at the, noble, the four noble truths as linear you know, like we're gonna we, we notice we're suffering, we wake up to the cause, we uh, engage the practice and then we're done. <laughs> because, and, and I think it's more cyclical. And I think it really describes, I think there's something really compassionate about the way this is traditionally taught because it describes this cycle from our vantage point and our, by saying our here, I mean as, as practitioners, as, as human practitioners, to me, this describes my life actually. I'm going along, I'm making an effort. Actually, I'm going along, I'm making an effort and then usually I'll cling to some aspect of my effort even if it's started off wholesome. And then in my grasping, there's suffering. I'll notice I'm suffering, I'll look for the grasping, I'll engage the practice and then likely I'll cling to that <laughs> and then get back into the cycle. And so it's less for me, and maybe in terms of Zen practice in particular, it's less about that we're gonna end suffering forever, but we can end it in any given moment. And I've been thinking a lot about like, like it's, I think there's something really beautiful that these are called the noble truths, including the noble truth of suffering. They're like, what's the nobility of suffering? And I think there's a couple of parts of that for, for me anyway, one part of the nobility of suffering is um, it's just true. Human beings, we suffer. And there's something, when I, when I first came to practice and heard that, I was so relieved. I was like, oh, okay. I'm not getting it wrong all the time. You know, It's just a point of fact of this realm. Human realm, there will be suffering. And it describes my life. You know, It's like, I love all these people and I love being alive and we're all mortal suffering <laughs> it's just like that's just suffering you know right there um and i think there's also nobility in the waking up to the suffering you know there's something there's something noble and true and so when we notice we're suffering then then we have a chance you know for liberation actually right there it's quite different to be lost in it like i'm just right and they're wrong you know when i'm in the place of like i'm right and they're wrong I'm not, the, no, the noble truth is not really engaged yet. Um, 
And, and I think there's also something beautifully compassionate about it being um, laid out in this way, because that's, for me anyway, that's how, as a practitioner, I see this, or that's how the cycle works. I very rarely wake up to the grasping uh, before it happens, or, I don't know, is that true? I, I, I basically, I just wake up to the pain of grasping, which is the suffering. But truth, in truth, the grasping is always first. Grasping actually creates the suffering. But this teaching is to say, once you notice that you're in pain, um, look for the grasping. The way out is to like, look closely for grasping. Where is it? <clears throat> and, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that grasping, um, it comes in obvious forms or grasping or craving. You know, we can think about the ways the mind and, and the self is we're always, like, oh my God. You know, I, like again, like particularly in dominant American culture, <laughs> you can't see me. I'm like, <laughs> I can picture in my hand like a mouth, like uh, eating up uh, the world, you know, and everything in it. Um, that that we know that that suffering is pretty obvious. I think it's also important for us to understand that aversion is a kind of grasping. So pushing away, that's also grasping, and it. Um, <clears throat> also causes us suffering. So, so our our engagement, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, is to look for that grasping in any of its forms, including subtly. And oftentimes, um, what we're grasping is a sense of ourselves as separate from the world or from other things. That that you know, I, for me. It, it, I would say actually it always comes down to that, um, some, some part of that, that I'm trying to separate myself from um, being impacted actually by the, the myriad conditions of the world. <clears throat> and so the Eightfold Path, that fourth noble truth, um, the, the, the eight parts that are pointed out, like places uh, of cultivation for us to try to minimize <laughs> the grasping and the cycles of suffering are, <clears throat> it's often called, often in English they use the term right, like right view or right thought, but it's I think equally accurate to use the term skillful or aligned, or in some ways I think true. It like true, it's, it, um, it's when we're in true, a truer view of reality is one that, uh, that opens to a fuller picture and a sense of a separate self, a truer thinking, a truer, a truer speech, more, more aligned. So aligned, aligned view, thought, speech, action, effort, livelihood, mindfulness, and concentration or meditation. That's the eight of them. But I wanna just focus on the first one, which is a skillful or aligned view. Um, Cause it's really this, this, this image, or there's, a, there's a, to, to conjure an image of right view for me has uh, interrupted a bunch of suffering for me lately, <laughs> or it has pulled me out of pits of despair when I fall into them. Um, right view or skillful view or aligned view traditionally is um, rendered as understanding how karma works. So the teaching here is like, if we can understand karma, we, we are more likely to engage in the world skillfully. 
Um, and there's two aspects that are essential, I think. And, and a karma, you know, there's lots of teachings about this, but essentially we human beings, we don't fully understand karma. To, under, to like have a view, or maybe when we have a view of karma, we're more like a Buddha, we're in a Buddha mind. It is wisdom to understand the workings of karma. And the ingredients of, of the karmic machinations are impermanence, so keeping a view of how things are impermanent and changing. And the other pieces, um, what's well, often rendered as emptiness, um, it's, it's the term um, shunyata, the emptiness or, or voidness of all things. But what I think is a, probably a better idea, or at least for me, <laughs> it's more helpful, is to that same term actually is connectedness, like the vast deep connectedness. Thich Nhat Hanh uses the term interbeing to describe the same thing that lots of people use the term emptiness for. It's how, it's the vastness of how all things are intertwined and connected. There's a, you know, the, there's a koan, a fundamental koan in Zen where Bodhidharma, who's said to have brought Zen from India to China, meets an emperor and the emperor says, you know, what's, what's the highest meaning of the holy truths? And Bodhidharma says, empty, nothing holy. Um, he was working, I think, with the emperor's grasping or he was giving a skillful teaching I think we can flip it around and equally say, connected, everything is holy. And everything, everything has its part. Um, in, the, in the Dharma of anti-racism, uh, Reverend Lan brought the image of Indra's net. People heard of this image before? So Indra's net uh, predates Buddhism. It's, a, it's an image of like the, basically the workings of karma. And you can picture it almost like a spider web or like a net. And then at every node of intersection of the web is a jewel. And every jewel, the teaching is that every jewel uh, reflects the entire web. And, and in, in, you know, for us to work with it in terms of practice, um, every jewel is anything that we can see in particular, any particular thing which includes us. So for, for the sake of <laughs> making a quick image, like we are jewels, human beings are jewels. When I say we, I mean like each of us as human beings. Um, everything that we think of as a particular thing, chairs and houses and trees, people, we're, we're uh, a node on the net of all entwined conditions. And, uh, we actually are net, we're made up of net. <laughs> we're just dense accumulations, you know, of conditions. And uh, so that we can, so that we do have particularity, you know. One of the things I don't like about the teaching of emptiness is it's like really for the way I've seen it applied has erased people's particularities in ways that are completely unhelpful. You know, in, in Zen, we talk about the two truths and they're equal. This emptiness, this way that all things are connected, that's like kind of wacky beyond our reckoning and conventional reality where we see things as separate, like um, these are equally valuable actually, you know? So we don't want to lose sight of our particulars. Um, so, and that's what's so cool I think about 
naming them as jewels. The way that we're particular, this is like the treasure of each of us. And uh, we are completely entwined and connected with all things. And just to give some dimensionality to this image, you know, a net's kind of two dimensional or a web is, can be sort of two dimensional. But uh, if you want to engage your bodhisattva imagination, like let it explode <laughs> into all the different uh, dimensions into the past and into the future, into all directions. Um, and this isn't something we try to grasp. It's just something we, we engage with our bodhisattva hearts as practitioners and our bodhisattva imaginations. In Zen, you know, in our, do you all say, I, I imagine you say all Buddha's 10 directions three times at, at Brooklyn Zen Center. So the, that actually is a teaching that's pointing to this messy relationship of all things. Um, all direct, the 10 directions is actually just shorthand for like in every direction you can imagine. And the three times is past, present, and future. Every time we do that dedication, actually, we're reminding ourselves, oh, I'm accountable to everything in all directions, in the past, and in the future and in the present. <laughs> um, in the Genjo Koan, I think to me, the Genjo Koan is, is trying to teach us how to engage with this, 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 this skillful or aligned view. And Dogen uses a lot of imagery in there. Um, but at some point, he, he, without even imagery, he says, when Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, uh, when, dharma, when, when dharma does not fill your whole body and mind, you think it is already sufficient. You think that what you see as, uh, as things being separate is the truth. When dharma fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. And to me, this is this beautiful teaching about like, we're not supposed to try to grasp the vastness of the things that we're in relationship to, but we are supposed to include it as practitioners or account for it or something. I don't know what, if you all have a better word, please give me it. <laughs> you know, like, like swim in it. <laughs> we are supposed to swim in that, that there's a vastness beyond our reckoning. If we want to reduce suffering in the world, if we wanna be accountable for reducing suffering in the world, we need to account for this possibility. The conditions present here are way beyond First of all, my control, <laughs> and secondly, my seeing. And that, even though that can be a little trippy, that uh, gets us in right alignment so that then we can engage in the conventional particular world with more spaciousness, really. And that that's, and, and uh, yeah, the kind of spacious Buddha heart. And even though I think this image can be a little bit like, well, that's pretty abstract. Like, what am I supposed to do in any given moment? How is that going to aid me in my, in my, you know, what, whatever action comes next? I think we can boil this down to, am I coming, am I standing on the ground of separation right now? Or am I standing on the ground of connection? This is a quick litmus test. <laughs> 
am I moving from a place of feeling like I'm separate and other people are separate and things are separate? And I can make, and, and that, you know, there's lots of, again, like lots of subtle and kind of sneaky ways that that kind of mind can try to perpetuate itself. It can feel totally legitimate, you know, for me as a parent to be like, I just want to make sure my kids are okay. But um, can I do that in a way that makes sure everybody's kids are okay? You know, it doesn't mean I don't care for my children. It doesn't mean that my responsibility, for example, to my children is not very specific. You know, nobody else is, is their mom, you know, and I have a role to play there. And so that is closer in and maybe denser, you know. But can I love them and, and try to work for a world for them that also benefits all children? That's how this kind of bodhisattva inquiry can work, I think. But I'll just say a couple more pieces of, <clears throat> you know, if this sounds like a good idea. <laughs> if, if skillful of you uh, coming from a place of, of connectedness sounds like a good idea for you, or you want to try it out, or uh, or reinforce your efforts there already. I just want to mention a couple of things that I think can be super supportive for this. And the first is attuning to the body. Um, I, more and more, I, I, I feel for myself and I see in my own experience, and then I hear it reflected from so many different places. When we can attune to our body, it's an amazingly transgressive thing particularly in this country, I would say, particularly if we've been really saturated by dominant white culture, the white supremacy culture. Um, I feel like, like uh, uh, the principle, like white supremacy culture really gets perpetuated because uh, in me, I'll just speak for myself, because I have been taught the ground of dissociation and when I subvert that by tuning into myself, I'm, I'm actually a lot more able to, first of all, feel the pain of the many, many traumas of this culture. And then uh, care, <laughs> take care of myself and others in those interactions. In, in the, um, the Dharma being anti-racist, one of the things that we ask the people in it and ourselves actually too, to do is to think of like our earliest memory around racial identity. And it's so, it, it's so interesting to go back to those and really, and then, and then we kind of use it all the way for four months through the course. Uh, you know, some people midway through are like, can we move on <laughs> from this early thing, please? <laughs> We'd like to work with our adult selves, you know, and but but by sticking there, like some really amazing things come forward. And um, when we do that class, we have small groups that are in uh, racial uh, identity groups. So, for example, I as a white teacher work then in a small group with with folks who are white identified, and I can say that there was this amazingly consistent theme. Um, and, and different, and then you could hear different things from uh, the folks who are BIPOC or uh, not, or, or you know, people of color had different experiences. But really, it was also pretty universal there too. That as an as in early childhood, there's some experience of racism. It's 
somatic, like that usually the experience for us as children is like, something is wrong. Like I feel funny, you know, then turning to the adults in our sphere for like, something's funny here, something's wrong. Can you help me understand this? And especially for the white folks getting like nothing. <laughs> it's a, it's a kind of trauma actually to not validate a child's experience like that. Or, and, and it's a teaching already, like there's nothing to see here. Don't pay attention to your body. Don't pay attention to that feeling that you have that something's funny. Or, you know, in some ways the nothing was like, I don't know, in some way, it's not benign. Um, it really does, it, that's where a lot of the training starts about how to perpetuate white supremacy culture. But also just like not being given language, not being able to, respond to it at all. And, and the feeling, if you go, if for those of us in the class, like going back to that of like, just being left alone and trying to understand the pain we were feeling, even as white kids you know, who were not on the receiving end of the oppression, but witnessing the oppression happening. Um, so the body, and also that kind of brings me into the second uh, thing that I think is really supportive, which is, uh, inquiring into the views that we have inherited that are not skillful and really spending a lot of time there. You know, what is it in um, that in, in the Eheikoso Hutsugam and quietly explore the farthest reaches of these causes and conditions, I feel like is this real deep encouragement for us to look into our conditioning, our early conditioning you know, it, it strikes me often lately that so much of our sense of, of right and wrong and good and bad and just our, our, our view of the world is formed in our childhood and we, and we don't necessarily take the time and go back and be like, wait a second, <laughs> what? You know, like, do I believe that? And is that true? And, and I feel like practice encourages us to do that. You know, that all of the messages I got that I was uh, lesser because I was in a female embodiment, for example. Like, have I been, have I revisited all of those and uprooted all of them? You know, no. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if we can because this stuff is so pervasive, but I can at least bring it into the light. So that's another thing I think that in order to live in aligned or skillful view, uh, really commit ourselves as practitioners to going into our unskillful views and, and bringing them into the light of our, not our vicious, harsh, <laughs> not, the, not the judgmental awareness, but the awareness that's like, where'd you come from? You know, where'd you come from? And do I want to keep you anymore? And then uh, the other piece I think that can be so amazingly supportive is, is the Bodhisattva imagination. I had this, I, I had a couple of years ago, I, I was having this whole contemplation about Bodhisattva imagination. And I came to my husband, Charlie, who's also a priest. And I was like, oh, imagination has this really important part in our practice. And he's like, oh yeah, Norman Fisher just wrote a book about that. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's sort of cool. But I thought it was my idea. <laughs> But that's actually a cool, <laughs> I did generate some idea, but it is pretty, but there you go. Like there's that resonant in the field of uh, practice, you know, this idea of imagination. 
And, and Norman's book is called The World Could Be Otherwise. It's really, it's neat, uh, this concept of bodhisattva imagination. And I think we see it also even in the Genjo Koan, like that encouragement of, of uh, Dogen Zenji to like, um, you know, it is like a palace, it is like a jewel. It only looks circular as far as we can see at that time. All things are like this. This is Dogen encouraging us to engage with the world with this, with a multiplicity beyond our knowing and let it kind of sit there in the realm of imagination, but also impact us. And I don't, in the interest of time, I'll make it short, but I do want to name the people that are, are just, um, my heart is just singing every time I hear um, them are the current uh, abolitionists in our country. Um, I was just hearing an interview with um, Kyla Reed this week on a podcast called Undistracted, which I think is really awesome. Um, but a couple a, a couple years ago, a woman named Miriam Kaba, if you don't if you've heard of her, who's a prison abolitionist, um, was a, did an interview on a podcast called Beyond Prisons. I think it's from like 2017 or 2018. In, in listening to this interview with her was the most dharmic thing I've ever heard, actually. The most bodhisattvic expression of, of a life path. And I mentioned this because, you know, that's a place where I feel like if we want to understand what bodhisattva accountability looks like, this is what it looks like. If we want to imagine this country without prisons or a world without prisons, then to do that, all these amazing um, activists and organizers then say, we need to think about food and education and childcare and uh, you know, genuine loving accountability in our society to one another. Mariam Kaba talks about collectivizing care. You know, there's like the tyranny of self-care. <laughs> I can say as a parent, like, I don't need like one more thing to do that I'm not getting right, you know? She talks about self-care as collectivizing care. And to me, this is, this is like, this is a living engagement of our of bodhisattva view and reality. And then lastly, I think our deep, our deep support of Sangha, that we need to find places, <clears throat> we need to find places to support us and then create places and um, demand <laughs> places in, in all of our human interactions. You know, that can be, maybe it's a Buddhist Sangha, but maybe, but, but the idea of creating Sangha in anywhere we work or any institution where the, the primary thing is the human relationships and the stuff that, you know, the academics or the whatever else, you know, like the work product, the services, those are all there, but they come secondary to caring for the relationships. And that, that this to me is a real expression of Sangha and of embodied accountability that, that is our best chance at re restoration in our world and um, reducing suffering and healing and being accountable and holding ourselves and others accountable. May our intention Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. 
Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.